All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Standard Issue for All Women. Hello and welcome to episode 120 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I am now officially an auntie. Yay! That's very exciting. It is very exciting. Being an auntie is a great job. It's all the fun and none of the responsibility, right? Well, some of the responsibility. What? And, yeah, some. Some, because you're in that group where you're not really supposed to say no when they say, is there any chance you really could just, just for the weekend, really? <laughs> Yeah, you have to say yes. But yeah, it is a lot of the fun. A lot of the Hamilton trips and very little of the financial responsibility. I'm very excited. And I also think that if after four weeks they still haven't got a name, then it's my choice. Yeah, I would say that's absolutely fine. My friends have chosen a name for their kid. I won't say it on here but they because that's their job to tell it, but they have. We were discussing it last week. They will no longer be arrested and given a child <laughs> called Dave. You don't even get to keep your own baby. They take your baby and just give you one called Dave. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and yesterday I went into my neighbour's house because she'd moved out for the whole of the pandemic, but she's back. 
So I went in to say hello to her. And after being in there for about five minutes, Peggy just strolled into the house and told me to come home. Just strolled in, just walked in her front door and went... (laughs) Until I left. Later on, I chat to Ita O'Brien, Intimacy Coordinator and Movement Director for Film, Television and Theatre. You'll have most probably seen her work in Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You and the thinking behind the role of Intimacy Coordinators is fascinating, as well as long overdue. It totally is. We also have a surprise mystery guest, maybe two, for you. Yes, we do. (laughs) Well, Well, I know. I don't need to tell Mickey who her interviews are with. I just wait till she sees who pops up in the Zoom meeting. Um, and then she has to make questions up on the spot. And so there's been a Dudley Who Does Disaster, obviously. And in it, we watch The Last Sharknado and decide never to let our viewers pick what we watch ever again. But first, Ghostbusters, Red Walls and me for president. <laughs> it's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where the world is slightly less bonkers than the last Sharknado. Just. (laughs) Cue Hannah just being hit by a shark. Yeah. The world is slightly more historically accurate than the last Sharknado. Just. (laughs) So, Mickey, I've got a question for you. All right. Can Donald J. Trump postpone the November presidential election in the US? No, no, he cannot. That is absolutely correct. Thanks. I asked this because the man himself tweeted last week that he was going to delay voting on what could be his second term because of the risk of widespread fraud in postal votes. A concern that seems to be backed by literally no evidence. Although 2020, right? Who needs evidence for anything? The spectre of Trump trying, and I stress the word trying, to prevent the election has hung in the air for a long time. I've said it myself. And for many, including Democratic candidate Hansi Joe Biden, coronavirus seemed to provide Trump with an excuse to try. Again, check out that word, try. The US election, as with many countries' voting systems, seems complicated from the outside. And much like our own method of voting in a leader, I mean, obviously that needs to go in the rabbit quotes because, yeah, it's not really a thing. It doesn't always reflect the will of the people. I'm not sure if anyone has mentioned this before. Ah, Trump didn't actually win the popular vote in 2016. No way. However, the flaws of the system aside, one thing is clear, and that is the president does not have the power to stop an election on his own. Thank fuck. And if you're still concerned, here's probably the most salient fact, and that is that the terms of Trump and his president, Mike Pence, expire in January. So, regardless of whether an election is held at all, they don't get to stay in office. It's not like they've hired a swan boat in their local park (laughs) and get to pedal around for another half hour because the teenager calling the numbers is too busy WhatsApping a photo of his cock to his girlfriend. (laughs) So, who would become president if an election wasn't held for some reason? Well, that would fall to the Speaker of the House of Representatives, which is currently Nancy Pelosi, although that role too is dependent on what happens in the November election. Next in line is President Pro Tempore of the US Senate, currently 86-year-old Chuck Grassley. So, you know, maybe not the best person for the job. (laughs) After that, I think it goes to any descendant of Franklin D. Roosevelt, 
the most recent winner of America's Got Talent, Mickey for knowing the correct answer to the election question, and finally Jerry from Succession. More news as it happens. I decided for my Bush Telegraph story, I'd do a, a quick roundup of where England is corona-wise. <laughs> yeah, because I'm a glutton for punishment, clearly. So, righto. Bowling alley staying shut, air bridges closing, locking up the over 50s, sealing off London, <laughs> hands face space, human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, <laughs> mass hysteria. So, yeah, <laughs> while I love crowbarring in a Ghostbusters quote, because Ghostbusters, it's apt. Rumour and chaos reign supreme and it is genuinely tricky to decipher what the actual rules are anymore. Which, were I any sort of conspiracy theorist, I'd posit plays very neatly into the hands of a government who wants the blame for any resurgence to fall squarely on the shoulders of us, the general pleblic. More on that shortly. Let's start with something that's definitely happening. We've got a new slogan, people. All Hooray! is not lost. I love yes. a new slogan. <laughs> Hands, face, space. Knees and toes. Knees and toes. <laughs> Continues are, and fucking hell, he really still is, Prime Minister Boris Johnson's love of a tripartite slogan. Wash your hands, cover your face and make space and all will be well, said the man who boasted about shaking hands with patients waited longer than other nations to recommend face coverings and is encouraging workers to return to offices even if they can work from home. Now what else scans with the new slogan, BJ? Test and trace. How's that working out, eh? Hmm. At the end of last week, tighter lockdown restrictions were announced for Greater Manchester, which has since declared a major incident, alongside swathes of East Lancashire and West Yorkshire. That's all my old stomping ground and around, oh, four million people. Mm. The use of the word lockdown is spurious, though. While households are no longer allowed to mix, pubs, restaurants, cafes and gyms remain open. Although mm. households aren't allowed to socialise in any of those either. Just do your bit for the economy on your own and fuck off home. <laughs> All of this was announced by Hat Mancock at 9.20pm to kick in the next day. Announced on Twitter, totes profesh-like. Tweet 3 in his four-tweet thread read, The spread is largely due to households meeting and not abiding to social distancing. I mean, there's very little evidence that they can have found that out to be the actual cause. And, this is all your own fault, plebs, would have saved him some characters. (laughs) Could have chucked some emojis in. A little racist extra to that saw Tory MP Craig Whitaker, whose constituents in the Calder Valley are affected by the new restrictions, telling LBC Radio that the vast majority of people breaking social distancing rules were from the BAME community and that minorities were not taking the pandemic seriously. This is, of course, unprovable horseshit. And in fact, Mm. in Trafford, for example, the latest outbreak appears to have started in Hale, which is one of the least diverse parts of the borough. Stop it with your facts, Mickey. I know, I know. <laughs> Don't bring your facts here. This is this is a chat about the most major thing that's happened in this country in a generation. <laughs> I have for facts. <laughs> I have to bring them here because I'll get laughed off of Twitter if I try it there. I mean, obviously, England is not the only country to see its R rate increase in various areas. Even Australia, which seems to get the virus under control pretty early doors, is having to impose lockdown restrictions, and they actually do lockdown properly. But it is telling that when it comes to COVID-19, we can't talk about the UK. Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland have been making their own decisions, following their own timelines. And while no one's out of the corona woods just yet, Scotland is reporting its biggest rise in new cases for two months as I speak, the differences in how this has all been handled are staggering. 
Who are you going to call? Not off fucking sewer, that's for sure. Yeah. I'm starting to think I didn't make the most of the easing of lockdown restrictions. I know, right? I'm starting to wish I didn't vote Tory, Hannah. Oh, wait, no. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the piece in The Times by its deputy literary editor, James Marriott, about the lack of young white male voices in literature of late. Outraged by that first sentence? Well, maybe don't be like everyone on Twitter who, owing to The Times' paywall, clearly had not read beyond the opening pars and kicked off alarmingly to the degree that Marriott left Twitter. The piece coincided with the announcement of the Booker Prize longlist, which contains 13 authors, eight of which are US or dual UK-US citizens, and perhaps more pertinently, appears to be diverse to a degree that does not stretch as far as including any young white men. Mm. In fact, there hasn't been a white British man under the age of 40 on the Booker shortlist since 2011. Now, you may well feel that this is what happens when you judge books only by their quality, and that young, white, male British writers aren't all that. Or maybe you feel that white men have dominated novel writing for so long that this is merely some form of payback. Or maybe you feel that since books are mostly read by women, that the list should reflect that. So, since my second story in BT has recently become the bit where I say something that really shouldn't be controversial but increasingly is... (laughs) such a maverick. I'm going to say I don't think those things. In fact, I think Marriott has a point, and I'll tell you for why. In the full piece, which you may or may not have read... Marriott goes on to explain that getting journalists interested in the work of new white male authors is increasingly hard. Journalists want to talk to writers about their identities and white male is increasingly seen as a tired, boring demographic. But the UK is, in many ways, more divided than it has ever been and if you believe that the job of art is to reflect, investigate and leave a marker about the times we live in, as I do then deciding that someone who perhaps grew up in a red wall town that recently went blue might have nothing to contribute to a debate is the sort of thinking that led to, well, dare I say it, red wall towns (laughs) going blue. Hmm. I'm genuinely more interested in a novel about what it's like for a young man to live in a northern town in a post-austerity, post-Brexit, post-Me Too world than I am, for example, in The Sexual Adventures of Normal People's Marianne. While it's easy to imagine a world in which all white men went to Oxford, in truth, most of them live in working class communities. To assume they have nothing to say is to contradict everything one might also be saying on Twitter about listening to poor voices. Absolutely. Secondly, but equally significantly, if which social demographic you fall into becomes a driving factor in whether or not you can get a book published, publicised or garnered with praise... Then female writers, black writers, gay writers, Jewish writers become merely that. What it's like being a female author is a question that should be on the way out, not, as it increasingly seems to be, at the top of the list. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It just, it does a disservice to everyone to make novels about the identity of the author rather than about the content of the novel. Yeah, it really does. And like I say, it does a disservice to think that every man who puts pen to paper comes from a ridiculously privileged background and is merely writing in order to prop up the patriarchy. (laughs) I look forward to having a fight on Twitter about it later. I look forward to watching it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you fancy some good news? 
I certainly do. Well, I'm not going to lie. Like a disobedient sheepdog, this was hard to come by this week. Yeah. And so I've headed to Canada, where 28-year-old Mara Soriano, once more cuddling her builder bear, provides our oars and feelsies. Stay with me. I know it sounds sickening, but keep with me. Soriano's much-loved teddy didn't cost a lot, but it contained a recording of her mum's voice saying, I love you, I'm proud of you, I'll always be with you. Her mum died last year, and so Soriano was devastated when a backpack containing her iPad and Mama Bear was stolen during her recent move to a new apartment. She posted a story online, it went viral, including a retweet from Ryan Reynolds, who offered a no-questions-asked $5,000 reward for the return of the bear. Soriano then got an email from someone saying they had the bear and though she was sceptical, set up a meeting. Luckily, it wasn't a scam and two unnamed people brought her the bear safe and sound. Did they get the $5,000? They got the $5,000. So, could have been rewarded for bad behaviour, but at the same time... But this is the good news section, so let's gloss over that. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where it is best to resist the urge to post an arty black and white photo of yourself, at least until you know what hashtag challenge accepted you've actually accepted. So, Hannah, you won't know this because you don't hang out on Instagram, but it has recently been inundated with tasteful black and white portraits of women captioned with the hashtags challenge accepted and women supporting women alongside a nomination of their own pals to do the same. Why? Good question. Although not one that many women, and it was all women posting the photos, were bothering to ask. Feminists in Turkey have called on the rest of the world not to forget the original context of Instagram's hashtag challenge accepted trend, which was intended to draw attention to skyrocketing rates of sex-based violence in the country. In late July, Turkey was rocked as a country by the brutal killing of 27-year-old Pinyar Gultekin, who was allegedly murdered by an ex-boyfriend. And in Turkey, femicide, violence against women and so-called honour killings are deeply rooted issues. I've spoken in this section before about how President Erdogan and his ruling party are attempting to repeal the treaty known as the Istanbul Convention, a piece of groundbreaking legislation from 2011 that protects victims of domestic and sex-based violence and effectively prosecutes offenders. Needless to say, Turkey's withdrawal from the Istanbul Convention would be incredibly dangerous for its women. You know, women uplifting other women is clearly a good thing, but by doing it sheeple style, the original incredibly powerful context of this current iteration of the black and white challenge accepted hashtag, which Fat Fan seems to have originally started in 2016 to raise awareness of cancer, was just lost in a sea of light-hearted, directionless female solidarity, slash an excuse to post a flattering selfie. Now, I'm not going to ask you to stop doing that. In fact, you look great. Go for it. But please use that lovely photo of you to spread the word about this injustice and the many more that will be allowed to happen if Erdogan is successful in getting rid of the Istanbul Convention. Worth noting, too, that Poland's right-wing government has also just announced that it is moving to withdraw from the Istanbul Convention. Well, we all ought to rush to put an arty photo of our tits on Instagram in support then. (laughs) Yes, definitely. I was doing one as I was speaking because I can multitask. That story is exactly why you had to explain at the top (laughs) that I don't use Instagram. I mean, armchair activism can fuck off. 
Hello, Hannah here. Now, as you know, this is usually the point in the podcast where I interrupt to say something about you being able to give us some money via the magic of Patreon. But I know everyone's having to tighten their belts financially. And so how can you continue to help us? Well, you can listen to us because listens equals money for us. Equally, you could spend this time spreading the news about Standard Issue. I know a lot of you already do this, but if you see anyone on Twitter asking for suggestions of what they could listen to, just get in there and say Standard Issue. Thank you all for your help. And that includes everyone who already supports us on Patreon. Hello, I am joined on the phone by Ita O'Brien, Intimacy Coordinator and Movement Director for Film, Television and Theatre. Ita, hello. Hello, Mickey. How are you doing? I'm all right, thanks. I can see you. We're doing this on Zoom. I usually do phoners, so now I've got to work out where to look. <laughs> I like just be able to see somebody. There's that sense of that give and take, isn't it? Well, given that you work all the time with physical cues, it really makes sense. That's right. But that's also what's been really challenging in this Zoom time that I've been here and all these relationships and all this. I've done a certain amount of trainings with some of the film schools and some drama schools and trying to teach the work, but sort of pouring yourself into this, the square of the screen in this disembodied way. Yeah, really highlighting the challenge of disembodied people and trying to get people embodied, even in the sessions. I get people stood up and I get them, you know, yawning, body sound, movement, breath, um, shaking out. So, and again, just reconnecting with having a whole body. People are saying to me about the training, about, you know, can't you do a whole intimacy coordinator training online? And I'm going, no, because a huge part is not just what you do, but everything that we get from somebody, kinesthetically, auditory, energetically, when you're present in a room with somebody. And of course, that's what we're talking about with the Zoom things is that, we're trying to pick up all of those cues just through what we're getting from the screen. But that's what you need, you know. What I need is to feel someone's presence, feel how they hold space. What is the quality of their attention? How are they connecting with other people? Not just physically, but, you know, kinesthetically, auditory, you know. It's so complex. And that has to be done in, in body, in person. So I guess what would be a good start is to say that you were basically the first person to start putting together a code of best practice for sex scenes, for intimate scenes, something which has now been picked up pretty much across the board for the big hitters in TV, film and theatre, which is great. But can you tell us a bit about the role of an intimacy coordinator and how you came to it? First of all, there was never an intention to create either the guidelines or the role, but that's what's happened. But let's start from the reverse. So first of all, an intimacy coordinator, the practitioner of an intimacy coordinator, is just absolutely akin to either a stunt coordinator or a choreographer. We're talking about the scene, so we're bringing open communication and transparency, and then we're putting in place agreement and consent, so checking out putting a structure in place that allows the actor to be clear with where they're happy regarding nudity, similar to sexual content and touch, and then the intimacy coordinator bringing all of their skills as an embodied practitioner, a movement practitioner, a practitioner who understands about anatomy, physiology, so we bring a choreography to the structure of the intimate content, so everybody knows exactly what's happening. It's serving the director's vision, serving the storytelling, And in that place of clarity, it means the actor is able to bring all of their beautiful skills as the actor to that intimate scene, creating the best work possible. 
And that hasn't been there in the past. No. And that's why we've had scenes where an actor's been this weird mishmash because invariably it's either you two go away and work it out for yourselves or, okay, you know what we want in front of the camera, go for it. And in both of those scenarios, there's been a real, you know, sort of unhealthy merging and no clear clarity of who you are personally and therefore, you know, what your personal and private concerns might be about your own intimate body and your own nakedness. And then who you are as a professional, bringing your skills as an actor, serving character. And it's led to some pretty horrific stories that have come out of the film industry as well. This is it inherently. I mean, like really, really before now, you know, and I've spent, you know, my journey, you know, I've been a musical theatre dancer and then I trained at Bristol Vic as an actor and worked as an actor for eight years you know, and you have that thing of an actor will read a script, you know, read a, a theatre script or read a film script, and they'll, their heart will go, oh, there's a sex scene. Because there just wasn't a structure before now to allow everybody to work professionally. The famous ones, you have the two actors in blue as the warmest colour, you know, speaking about the filming of that intimate scene going on for days, let alone, wow. you know. And that confusion as to... um you know, or or just that knowing that it wasn't serving character necessarily, you know, this, yeah, and what was the gaze, what was the focus, feeling that it was not held really professionally. You know, Emily Clark recently talking about, you know, her first ever intimate scenes on Game of Thrones. Again, there wasn't a structure, there wasn't a process. So she was left, you know, it took for her, her co-actor to be able to go say to wardrobe, you know, where's her dressing gown? There wasn't an understanding that you needed to uh, choreograph clearly. And then, of course, Maria Schneider, last tango in Paris, you know, spoken about so often and such damage created there. You have Bertolucci and Brando speaking together, deciding what they wanted from the scene and preparing a lubricant, not telling the actress, springing it on her on the day. She initially said no, and Brando pulled it aside, said, look, it's no big deal, it's just a film. But then you also have a narrative of Bertolucci saying he didn't want her to know. He didn't want her to know what was happening. He wanted the response of a young woman being done too. He didn't trust her skill as an actor, you know, if there was absolute clarity. And then he, but then he also says, oh, it's just a film. And it's like, uh-oh, you've, again, that, that complimenting that um, he was absolutely exploiting her personal self to get the scene that he wanted while also going, oh, but it's just a film. It wasn't just a film in that moment. That was something that was actually happening to her and that has its repercussions and it has its really serious long-term effects. You know, the amount of people, whenever I run a workshop, I start with asking people to think about, and I'll get them in pairs, first of all, to talk about when the intimate content's been done well, but then when it's been challenging. And everybody, absolutely everybody has a story, and particularly those that have had stories. You know, I had a director, but the only reason they were a director was she was saying the last time she had acted, the intimate content was done so badly that she stepped away from acting. That's so sad. Yeah. And it's mad as well when, you know, obviously actors have to do various physical tussles as part of their work, but for a long time they've been fight coordinators, stunt coordinators. So it feels like this this is really late to arrive on the scene. So my my understanding and my reflections on this, it's really clear that everybody doesn't walk around the street doing a tango. That is true. Absolutely. <laughs> and I live in like wanky southeast London and it doesn't even happen here. <laughs> Wouldn't it? That, that'd be a Richard Curtis world where everybody could, did that. Oh, I don't think I could cope. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and everybody living right next to the Thames as well. You know, so of course we need to bring in a choreographer to teach that skill mm-hmm. and then to choreograph clearly. 
We know that not everybody is expert if you put a sword in their hand to make you know, a really swashbuckling sword fight look great. We know that you're going to need a stunt coordinator to teach those skills and then to choreograph clearly. With the intimate content, I felt that there's that, that thing of, well, we all are sexual beings. That is, you know, as human beings, you know, sexual, our sexual lives are part of who we are. And so therefore, there's not a skill that needed to be brought. That's my sense of, you know, when I reflect on it. And so there wasn't that understanding that actually we need, first of all, to do a risk assessment. And then to actually to bring, you know, as we're, you know that's a shift in really inviting the industry to understand that as intimacy coordinators, we are bringing movement skills. We are bringing choreographic skills, body knowledge skills to that element of the guidelines, which is choreographing clearly so that everything is known. So that's my sense why it wasn't there. And then the other side is people were just embarrassed to talk about intimate content. Yeah. And again, when there wasn't a structure through which to hold that space, to give space, talk about the intimate content in the same professional structure as you have for either a dance or a fight, then that's where the producer, the director would be embarrassed. So therefore not deal with it and therefore keep on leaving it. So you get to that point again that it's, oh, now just do it. So a lot of the time, the bad practice wasn't from any other reason than the director or, or the production was just embarrassed to deal with the content openly, adultly, in a professional manner. It feels to me like there are there are two lines. There's the line between character and actor, as in this is a character having this intimate scene, not the actor as a human being. And also the line between moving a plot forwards and what that stands for and gratuity, and they're both quite fine lines, right? Absolutely. So, so the structure of the guidelines is, first of all, the awareness of personal self to professional self and professional self then serving character. That's a huge, important part of what the guidelines give is really separating that out. And you separate that out by, you know, having this structure. I was saying to my actors, your responsibility is to be aware. So to use your warm up of your personal self, warming up, being embodied, ready for work. Mm-hmm. You know, and in theatre that happens more often, but in filming, that's absolutely more the responsibility of the actor because, you know, sort of the, you're know, picked up at 4.30 in the morning, brought to your trailer, into makeup. Now, when are you going to do that? But I'm saying just for me, when I'm working with you, consider when. And then also bookending that. So at the other end of the day, after that full on day of work, giving your all, giving it all of your physicality and your emotional content, then making sure you let go, using again techniques that you let go and step back to personal self. Particularly if you've got a long run where there's lots of intimate content, that you're keeping that boundary of continuing to be able to be really proud and present of a good day of work separate from who you are personally and privately. So that's an important part of the structure of the guidelines. And then, yes, your awareness, which is spot on, then the structure is really inviting that what we're focusing on is, why is that scene there? Yeah. How is it serving the storytelling? How is it pushing the storytelling forward? What does it tell us about each of those characters and each of those characters in relationship? And that's just bog-standard, normal actor-director conversations about the script. That invariably, be it a theatre or film, will be done in every other scene. We're just inviting that that's also, this is normal. This is part of our storytelling, this is part of our lives, and we're dealing with it in the same way professionally. The difference is that then we actually perform it, rather than just dialogue, we're engaging our personal and private intimate body. There's a risk to that, and that needs taken care of through really having that focus of the actor-director interrogation of work, as you observed, it very quickly becomes clear 
whether either the content or the, the shapes or the you know the simulated sexual images are gratuitous or whether it's serving character. Either it gets called out and then it can be discussed. And so I had a situation where there was really clear images wanted that were really quite graphic. And in the conversation, I was saying to the director, why that image there? And then when we met with the actors, the actors going, uh-uh, not, not prepared to go there. And again, we said, well, have you had your interrogation of the scene with your director? That hadn't happened yet. As intimacy coordinators, we made facilitated that conversation. When that interrogation was done, gradually the scene un- unravelling, being understood, and between all three of them, then this excitement of actually the physicality that served the storytelling, actually the beauty, and we had this entwining and connection and everybody by the end so excited with the creativity that they had shared and then the physicality that came from that and those images that were offered in the first place just fell away. That's what we're looking at. That's best practice. Yeah, you get the difference between something like Game of Tits where, you know, it's just there for titillation, it really is, to some of the big hitters that you've worked on recently, most notably Sex Education, Normal People and the TV series that quite rightly is on everybody's lips, which is Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You. Now, some of the intimate scenes in there are so challenging, but they're all necessary for her story. What are the different challenges thrown up on working on such diverse programmes? The interesting thing is, you know, sort of people come to me saying, oh, I'm a, you know, a sex therapist, so therefore I'll be a good intimacy coordinator. And I'm going, "Mm, actually, the sexual content is the last bit that actually we're focusing on as an intimacy coordinator and then supporting a production with. As you can hear, the fundamentals that I need of my practitioners are all of those skills, maturity to hold space, actor, director, process, awareness, in-depth knowledge, understanding, and then body skills, movement skills. And then we're bringing all of those skills to then what's required for each and every job. And then just as an, an actor, just as a director where you know, the experience or the subject matter is outside of your realm of experience, you blimmin' well make sure you do your due diligence and you research it. Mm -hmm. So in each of those situations, the important thing for me is that in each of those productions are putting in place the structure of the guidelines, and then we conserve that writing. And that will mean that I will specifically research so that I'm getting that content correct. So for me, the process is the same, but the detail and then making sure that the research is done to honour that detail of the sexual content is then what you're seeing in each different production. And how have you found that the other people involved in these productions, I guess particularly the director who, as you know, as someone who doesn't work in those industries, feels like the head honcho there, react to you getting involved? Has it felt welcoming? So the thing that is the constant across all of the productions that you've mentioned that have been highly acclaimed, other than me being across them, is actually that each of those productions have intended to work with best practice, Mm -hmm. have got producers, directors who know that they want to work with keeping their actors safe, taking care of their actors in order to make the best content. That's a constant. And I would say that absolutely of John Jennings, Ben Taylor, um, the whole beautiful production team for sex education. And then Ed Gurney, Catherine McGee, the most amazing producers, Lenny Abrahamson. It was just like, oh, couldn't believe it to be able to work with such a beautiful director such a beautiful human being and then with you know such beautiful actors as um Paul and Daisy and then equally oh my god Michaela and what she was holding and a whole production that again is behind her storytelling the creativity 
within the process of making I May Destroy You and that the development of this unfolding vision of Michaela's. She did 191, you know, rewrites. Wow. I know. And she did that. Nobody else did that. You know, so, uh, so we kept, I said, oh, what are you doing this weekend? She goes, oh, I'm rewriting episodes seven and eight. You know, and you just go, oh, my God. But again, her, you know, what she's written and the whole of the production supporting and honouring her work and wanting to put in place best practice so that, again, it can be done um, in the most professional way possible, taking care of, of the actors in order to make the best content. So that was the constant across the board with all of those productions. And it was just a joy for me and a real privilege to have been invited in to support those productions. Are there any productions that you'd really like to get your hands on? <laughs> um, uh, that's a really interesting one. I mean, I've, I've, I'm feeling really lucky. I've got some really, really beautiful productions coming up, all of which I'm really, really delighted to be part of. Um, I mean, if Game of Thrones was to happen again, yeah, I would absolutely have loved to have been in something like that from the get-go in order to be able to have not just, you know, groundbreaking content if it's done for the right reasons, as with I May Destroy You. And, and, you know, and like with normal people, I was aware that the quality and the degree of that content in serving Sally Rooney's writing was groundbreaking. I was saying that to Lenny while we were working on it. And it's so beautiful that being seen as such at the moment, I'm just feeling very fortunate and I can't share with you what those productions are, but I'm very excited about these little nuggets of incredible productions that I have, um, you know, that I'm in conversation with about working on in the coming months. Okay, well, we'll definitely keep an eye out then. <laughs> More generally, what would you like to see in terms of intimacy guidelines and practice moving forward in TV, film, and theatre? So, what I want is that um, it's just in legislation. Right. Yeah. And the budget's made for it. And that we continue the education of the industry regarding the structure, which is, you know, everybody knows that, that they're going to do their, that if they've got a stunt, they're going to look out for all the points and times that they can rehearse. That's going to be inherently put into the, you know, the call sheets so that they know that by the time they get to actually doing that fight, that all of that's been put in place. And that the intimacy coordinator is bringing their skills of choreography to the intimate content. I've had some productions that have said, check in with the actors, do the nudity waivers, and then don't do anything. Mm. And I'm going, but that completely misses what, you know, the completion of what it is that we're, not just what we're bringing, the skills that we're bringing as an intimacy coordinator, but also the professional structure that we're giving to those actors to be able to be empowered and happy and autonomous to perform those scenes in that kind of situation. You know, I've had the director say to me, oh, just let her act it. But I'm going, you know, without a clear structure, she's not going to be able to release into really serving the, the character and the vision in that place of just let her act it. Again, that's, that's old school, where she'll be in this mismatched place of then just trying to go for what she brings rather than really focusing on who is this character, what's his character physicality. So um, anyway, so legislation for it to be understood across the board for um but just be inherent and therefore the money being allowed you know being made available for mm -hmm. it yeah so the likes of the, you know the the big overarching um bodies like we're in conversation with Beck two which is the you know union for for the all of the crew which is fantastic and that's been championed by intimacy for stage and screen which is superb but then bfi bafta all of those big bodies need to absolutely demand that intimacy coordinator is, in, is inherent. 
And then the other side to that is, if that's what we're asking for, then obviously we need people and practitioners to be able to facilitate that demand. Mm-hmm. So then that's the next bit that I'm working on. And I you know, have a really clear and robust pathway through to full accreditation. But of course, if what's happening is people have come, you know, like I taught the work in Australia and New Zealand, somebody who just did two days and I'm now being told they've set themselves up and saying they're an intimacy coordinator. And I'm going, oh my goodness, I know that person does not have the integrity, does not have the experience and isn't, you know, making sure that they're, you know, being journeyed through and being mentored by someone who is an expert practitioner. I'm in the process of setting up on my website. So I'm saying to producers, if someone presents themselves to you, find out their criteria, find out, you know, what their pathway has been to be able to call themselves an intimacy coordinator so that we, you know, we make sure that the role of the intimacy coordinator can be trusted across the globe. And I'm working very closely with Alicia Rodis in this, in America. Yeah, she worked on the Deuce, didn't she, with David Simon? That's right. Yeah. That's right. And that was happening in 2000. I think it's 2017. So she was already been invited in on set there. And I, the first time I was made aware of her in my research was actually in the summer of 2017. Where I think she was already doing the work. So, so it's and it's fascinating how um sort of memes happen across the globe because. As you know, as, as I've been sharing with you, I started looking at how I keep my actor safe in 2014, and then was invited to start teaching the work in 2015 in one of the drama schools. And through that invitation, I had the opportunity to develop the work, and then therefore came to being ready to de- to present the work in 2017. But we are now sort of making sure that across the globe, that we are in conversation, we're sharing what our pathway through to training is how many hours we're saying or days on set you need as your apprenticeship period before you can be ready to present yourself to the assessment to be fully accredited. That is so important because I don't want the industry to not trust the role of the intimacy coordinator by what I feel rogue people declaring themselves to be intimacy coordinators, not knowing how to present the work. So that's also what we're making sure so that we can stay positive and keep the role of the intermediate coordinator is one that can be trusted and we can continue to make beautiful work as in normal people and I may destroy you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's finally being done, so it needs to be done properly. So I totally yeah. get while you're protective and rightly so of making this role as integral as it needs to be. There's loads of information on your brilliant website. Could you tell us what the address is, please? Intimacyonset.com. Brilliant. And Ita, thank you so much for talking to me. It's been absolutely fascinating. It's been an absolute pleasure to to meet you and to share the work with you, Nikki. Thank you. Hi, Hannah here. I'm on the phone with Mickey. Hello. Oh, hello. And I am also joined by surprise guest number one. There might be a surprise guest number two, but currently surprise guest number one. Oh, Jen. Hi. Oh, that voice. Now, Jen, we've called this meeting because (laughs) you haven't turned up to work for about six weeks now. And I think you are starting to take the piss. So tell me what your explanation is. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, It's actually been about nine weeks, Hannah. So I don't know what the fuck you've been doing all that time. (laughs) Well, actually, I've called this meeting to say, Hannah, you've not turned up to work. So what did you have? Tell us. Share. I mean, I've been waiting nine weeks for news, Jen. I can't believe I've had to ring you. Is it an otter? That was my guess. Part otter, yeah. I actually do tell her when I'm 
I don't know why I'm sharing this information with you. Basically, when you have a baby, you just start chatting all sorts of shit to them all the time because you have to. Uh, and when I'm putting the uh, the nappy rash cream on her bum, I do frequently tell her that I'm greasing her up like a little otter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, this is Who knew I'm motherhood now. was so sexy? <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, I had a girl, a little girl called Lyra, after the uh, you know the Philip Pullman character, who's the best little girl in the world. But now, obviously, sorry, Lyra Balacqua, you're the second best little girl in the world. It's mine, a right. bit marginally better than you. Probably not going to save the world, unlike Lyra Balacqua, but still a bit better, to be honest. Give her a chance, Jen. She's only seven weeks old. <laughs> Good point. Point. I mean, has yeah, she come I'm... up with a coronavirus plan yet? Yeah. <laughs> she often looks like she's thinking quite intense thoughts. So, uh, so who knows? Possibly. Feed, shit, sleep is an excellent slogan. <laughs> yeah. It's better than what the fuck is it now? It's something. It's it's like it's objectively bad, isn't it? Whatever um, space, it is. Space. No, but isn't it something like something, something, something? Get a test. Which like doesn't even like it just it's just objectively bad. It's wash your hands, cover your face, keep space, get a test. It's not catchy, is it? Anyway, yeah, it's very catchy, Jen. Oh wait, yeah, not Corona. <laughs> it's, it's very catchy. Oh whoops, sorry. <laughs> Walked into that one. Um, yeah, no, maybe she might be. I don't know. She's uh, she's having a little snooze moment, which is the first one she's done today. Not on me. She suddenly decided today that she only wants to sleep if if it's on me, which is difficult if you want to eat or, in fact, do anything other than hold a baby. Yeah, she's all right. She's a she's a chunky little thing. She's quite long. She's got very long feet, as you've discussed previously on the. <laughs> that's that's what I've been up to, basically. So, I, I mean, it's difficult for you to say this because obviously you haven't had a baby before. But what has your experience been of doing this in a pandemic? So after she was born, I had visits from um, a midwife, so or rather a series of midwives, and those did happen. Then they sign you off into the care of a uh, of a health visitor who I have never met, but have had lots of frustrating conversations with over the phone. <laughs> it's a very long time for her to get her sentences out, but. Bless her, she seems very nice. So, so yeah, I've not been having health visitor visits, which has been all right for me. It took a bit longer to get signed off by the midwife because Lyra was a bit, she had a bit of jaundice and, you know, there was a bit of concern about her weight. So I did get some like extra appointments that other people might not have gotten. But I was chatting to my mum about this because I sort of went to see my mum for a few weeks. And, yeah, I think if the health visitor visits there must be a better way of saying that but um, I can't think of one immediately I think if they're not happening like that must be quite bad mustn't it for some people I don't know I I sort of wonder like how are you getting the baby's weight measured and how are you you know how do you know that there's not a problem and I you know I've had some sort like when I was staying with my mum and I wanted to see a GP because basically like new motherhood is just Theories of dead arms and like terror about <laughs> like okay, what the fuck is she doing today? This can't be normal. I'm trying to get a GP's appointment out 
of you know where I would normally visit my GP they just refused to do it like they flat out refused to do it even though the nearest hospital is like a 30 minute drive away and I don't drive so like I think for some people it's probably been a much worse experience than the one I've had I've had GP's appointments here my GP would talk to me on the phone when I needed to you know, when I was unable to see a GP in Harwich they would talk on the phone and sort of taught me through whether or not you know she actually needed any medical attention or whether I was just being a bit bonkers where am I going with this guys I think for some people they will have had a much worse experience than I've had and I, I can see like it's, it's obviously a very worrying time and I don't think everyone is getting the help they need well, at all I think I mean we obviously we know between us a huge amount of people that have been pregnant during this and it does seem anecdotally, and obviously that's not statistics, that's anecdotes. Yeah. Um, but I, a friend of mine had to pay for a private breastfeeding consultancy because yes. she was very concerned that her baby wasn't feeding and it turned out that he had tongue tie. And, yes. you know, if she'd had a visit, maybe someone would have picked that up a whole lot sooner. And the question of what happens if you can't afford to pay for yeah. a private thing does seem quite worrying. No, actually, that is a good point because I'd forgotten about that. So I have had. Um, sorry, I keep looking to make sure she's still breathing. That's also <laughs> <important>. <laughs> uh, new motherhood. Um, so yeah, that's actually a good point that I've forgotten about, which is weird because I was on the phone to her today. But also, my brain is like absolute dog shit. Um, sleep deprivation is yeah, it's 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 real. Anyway, um, basically, I am amazed that the human race has like endured for as long as it has because we are so fucking badly designed so the little the little blighters pop out she says uh or you know in my case burst out uh, they don't really know what they're doing they don't really understand how to feed and obviously you sort of think oh this will be really easy won't it i'll just you know i'll just whop a tit out and it'll be fine and it turns out it's really really hard anyway so I was struggling a bit with that uh and various people in hospitals tried to help but I think one of the things is they're just quite small when they first come out and they don't really they're too sleepy and they just they don't really know what they're doing anyway she lost quite a lot of weight so we had to put her on formula um and a couple of midwives told me they thought she was tongue-tied but yeah I have failed to get a referral for that despite the people who would refer you actually telling me that they think she's tongue-tied and I've actually been you know she's almost eight weeks and I've actually been on the phone this morning still trying to get the referral for that and you know yes I know your friends I know the friend you're you're talking about and um I know other people done the same thing that she's done where they've had to pay for a private you know it doesn't cost that much but it is probably a lot more than a lot of people could mm. afford and also yeah just trying to get someone to see there's also like a breastfeeding clinic at the hospital that I in normal times would have been able to go to in order to get help feeding and again like it's it's not been the end of the world I've been able to give a, a formula or whatever formula is fucking expensive man it is really really expensive and so like one of one of the good things obviously about breast milk is that it's free if you can do it but you might well need a bit of support learning how to do it because mm. it's a lot harder than you would think it would be 
So uh, what I wanted to ask you about is, you've literally said that there would have been a clinic. You would have in an ordinary universe, like met other mothers. Just yes. So you've had to work at building a bit of sort of online community yourself. Is that helpful or is the fact that it is online, does that bring in, you know, the normal magic that exists online as well? Because I know you're doing something on Instagram, aren't you? Um, yeah, I'm sort of, kind of, yeah. I'm sort of putting, I'm like doing a little bit of like, I don't know what you call it now. Is it blogging? I don't know what you call it when you do it on Instagram, but I'm do, I'm putting like, you know, a bit of stuff on there about her and and yeah and it's it's quite good you get people sort of offering advice and stuff and and thus far no complete lunatics have found me so that's good (laughs) and but also you know i've got this little whatsapp group that i started with various people that you guys know and various people they know and and whatever that has um you know we've all had our babies roughly around the same time and that has been an absolute godsend just to have people that you can chat to like pretty much guarantee that whatever time of day someone sends a message there is always someone else who's awake at the same time to be like yeah I can't get them to go to sleep either blah 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 I think you do you know you do get those things with with NCT and various other antenatal classes but the good thing about this is because it's like a friend of a friend or or whatever with everyone I guess like maybe we have like a bit more in common to start off with than a random group of strangers so I've found you know I've actually enjoyed chatting to to them and it's actually been all right it's not just this sort of like I don't know I think you can some of these groups sometimes come with quite a lot of pressure and there'll always be like one fucker who's like baby is brilliant and feeds perfect and sleeps perfectly and whatever but I'm, I'm pleased to say that none of those fuckers exist in my whatsapp group so we're right. <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> thank you yes thank I, I take that as an endorsement of you and me as well mickey definitely although my contribution is a very new baby on the scene so maybe she's going to be that fucker who knows <laughs> maybe Jen, I also um, I also went to ask you how much are you managing to keep on with what's going on in the world because the world is also a bit fucking mad at the moment. It's not just it probably looks mad to you, but just FYI to someone who lives in it and has more sleep than you do, it also looks really fucking mad. I have been listening to uh, the Standard Issue podcast for my news updates. That's mm. basically Ooh. all. That's pretty much all I'm getting. I'm not watching the news. I'm deliberately avoiding it. Um, also. I don't have fucking time. I don't have time. Like, you know, any time I have to go on Twitter, I reserve it for, um, you know, moaning about Charlton Athletic or, or my housing association. So, you know, it's pretty limited. Um, but, yeah, no, it, it seems mad. From what I can glean, coronavirus is still happening, but the government don't want yeah. us to think that. And we're not allowed to go ice skating, but we are allowed to go to pubs. And that seems like a very good logic as far as I'm concerned, in terms of uh, eliminating a deadly pandemic. I feel like you've got the key news. You have misunderstood there. You can only go to an ice skating rink if you're pissed. That's the new rules. I want to go. <laughs> I'm slightly sad that Lyra will grow up in a world where she doesn't get to choose her Christmas presents out of the Argos catalogue. Oh, yeah, the Argos catalogue's gone, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah no, that is... That is sad. I don't, but we didn't have one when I was a kid. We had a Littlewoods catalogue. So, I, I mean, I imagine they haven't existed for a really long time. So, can you give me a brief rundown of what's happening this week in the news? 
Uh, the, the, well, if you listen to the Bush Telegraph, Jen, um, oh, yeah, well. yeah, you'll know. Um, uh, it's mostly shit. It's mostly shit. What's been your top shit thing that's happened while I've been away? John Lewis died. Yes, that's yeah. sad. Yeah. But not very funny either. <laughs> What's the top shit thing that's vaguely amusing? Vicky, you've got a functioning memory. Over to you. Oh, I don't know. Like, it wasn't uh, the top shit thing. I'm not going to answer that question because there's been a lot of actual hideous shit that's been going on. But I did a news story, a good news story, and Hannah said, oh, that actually is really good news for women. Usually it's good news for, I don't know, fucking otters or something. And I was like, (laughs) okay. And so the next week I found her a good otter news story just for Hannah. Oh, actually, a vaguely vaguely, um, pertinent point to make and one that I think would be definitely worth following up with um, the excellent Elaine Miller in the future. But um, but yeah, so I think everyone is getting their six-week checkups with the doctors, which is what you have after you've had a baby to make sure, you know, your bits aren't falling out of you and, and stuff like that. And um, what I will say is that mine was an actual joke, <laughs> like an actual joke. They basically, she... Basically, she was like, so how was the birth? And I said, well, it went on for 36 hours and she weighed eight pounds, 10 ounces. So that's a good joke, though, Jen. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was like, yeah, no, so it it wasn't it wasn't great. And um, yeah, and I did, you know, I I don't mind telling you I had quite a nasty tear, um, which fortunately has repaired itself and it's all fine. Hannah's hiding under her shirt. Um. Every time she wrote it down in a text message, I forced myself to read it as tear. She had quite a nasty tear. I couldn't bring myself to think about it properly. It's all right. They stitched me up and uh, and I'm pleased to say Good and proper. <laughs> as far as I'm aware. But at one point I did send Elaine a message saying, please tell me what's going on with my vagina. Anyway, <laughs> she, uh, she's fortunately able to offer me some advice and comfort. Mm. Anyway, uh, yeah, so she, so I was like, this is, you know, what happened. And she went, mm, mm, looks sort of sympathetic, made some sort of sympathetic noises. And then said, uh, and, and how, how, and how are you? Are you, are you all right? And I said, um, well, I don't know really. And she said, all right. Well, okay, let's look at the baby then. <laughs> I was like, really? Is that it? She said, no. She did not ask me. About my vagina. She did not ask me about my stomach muscles. She did not ask me about my boobs. She didn't like, you know, I literally had to insist that she checked my stomach muscles because I'd heard somewhere that it's quite bad if you start exercising before they're sort of, you know, back to how they should be. And I am quite keen to start exercising again. And yeah, it was it was an actual joke. Uh, and I know that Elaine is doing some really good at the moment about um making women's postpartum checkups a bit more thorough and a bit more you know i mean say what you like about donald trump he'd have asked how your boobs were <laughs> wow is this where we are 
I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jen, if people do want to stay in touch with you, they should be already following you on stuff, shouldn't they? But if they're not... Yeah, you bastards. Why aren't you following me? Um... (laughs) Give me a reminder where people can see cute pictures of Lyra and uh, and 3am Charlton rants from you. Well, the uh, 3am Charlton rants can be found uh, on Twitter at InspiraGen. And if you want to see some pictures of... Uh, she's just waking up now. If you want to see some pictures of a quite annoying but ludicrously cute baby, um, you can find me either at Jenoff or at Mumoff, which M-U-M-M dot O-double-F, uh, on the gram. What will we find on fuck dot off? Just out of interest. <laughs> I don't know. I've never checked. Which I'm going to check right now as soon as this conversation ends. <laughs> Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, why don't our listeners like us? What happened? I don't know. This week we watched The Last Sharknado, Sharknado 6. Seven. The shittest Sharknado, the 7th. I don't know. It was fucking mad. I usually take notes just by way of comparison when we watched whatever we watched last week, which now feels like a million years ago. Meteor. I took three pages of notes in the first 20 minutes. In this, it says The Last Sharknado, and then it says... This must be what the inside of David Icke's head looks like. And that is the only note I have taken in the whole of this thing. It was fucking mad. It was an hour and nine minutes of relentless stupidity, but not a fun stupid. Okay, it seemed like a fun stupidity, but not the sort of fun stupidity that appeals to me. It was just nuts. It was, it was 2020, right, basically. It was revisionist history it was just people getting hysterical and shouting it was mad shit that you can't imagine would ever happen happening i i ended up feeling quite shell-shocked as mickey pointed out there were some extras in this who actually looked more shell-shocked <laughs> than we did and that was just that they realized what film they were in not that they were worried about the shark nado they just realized what film they were in there are two really really good things about the last shark nado one is that it is the last Sharknado, and two is it that only lasts just over an hour. Yeah. And it has an enormous amount of kind of, like, nichely famous people in it. Not super famous people, but, you know, including Lucy and I spotted, who shall ever be known as Mike deGrasse yeah. Tyson, <laughs> the physicist, who appeared to have Zoom called his appearance in because his head is superimposed onto somebody else's head. And I don't think he even bothered to turn up at the studio. He's Merlin is, in it. Um, Did anybody pick up on that? Yes, he plays Merlin. Why? Gilfred Gabrud is in it, which is, I suppose, funny for about two seconds. But he is only in it for two seconds. Gary Boosie's in it temporarily, and that seems to sum up everything about this film. Really. But I think, like, Gary Boosie, or whoever looks after Gary <laughs> Boosie, because clearly if this performance, in inverted commas, is anything to go by, he has got carers. He could probably sue, because I don't think he knew he was no. in the film. No. <laughs> <laughs> he thought uh, he'd just gone yeah. out to a bar He with looks some very friends. sad, doesn't he? 
they managed to to get some stock footage or not stock footage but there is a lot of stock footage in this film so i should say that but they and that's the only stuff that's actually any good the stock footage but the um they seem to have got some replacement uh footage of john heard from the first one yeah, it's, it's not died. even replacement. It's stuff. It's not even like there was stuff on the cutting room floor that they've reused. Yeah. It's stuff that they have literally taken from the first shot, Nato, and one. just like yeah. he picks up his stool and walks out again. Yeah, I mean the plot, as much as it exists, it, there is both. This film is is kind of a, a. I mean, I understand why you might have a physicist in it actually, because because it seems to be a massive sort of inexplicable scientific contradiction in that it has no plot and way 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 too much plot at the same time which you wouldn't think would be able to exist in in the universe that something could both be passive and active at the same time basically they're traveling through time we got meteors volcanoes dinosaurs and sharks all within about the first 30 seconds and then we went to see merlin and then we went to see Benjamin Franklin, who apparently fought during the American Revolution, which is incorrect, but that's not this film's worst problem, but oddly was a thing (laughs) I fixated on because I just needed to be able to grasp hold of something in this lunacy. Then they go to a Western town and meet uh, Billy the Kid, and then they go to the 1990s, and you know it's the 1990s because you hear some girls going, I really like the Spice Girls! (laughs) And then they go into the future, and the future is, oddly, the least mad shit about it. In the future, everybody looks like Tara Reid. Which must be great news for her plastic surgeon, is all I'm going to say. Yeah, Everybody's got way, 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 way too much makeup on in it. I mean, I know I can be a bit judgy about how much makeup people wear, but I mean... Like, the sort of makeup that makes your face, like, an inch closer to the person you're talking to, even while you're not, <laughs> you're not moving. Yeah, it's mad. I don't, Lucy took some notes, and thank God, because I, I, this is the, for the first time I've basically got nothing to say, except, what the f- You and I both looked at each other and said, at the same time, I bet she gives birth to a shark. And there was a <laughs> smile on your face. There was a smile on your face. Who would have thought that we both have said the same mad shit at the same time it was an absolute pile of shite when you say plot i don't really know if there was a plot i think so it was called the last sharknado colon it's about time and i'm like it really is about time it should have been shortened down i think to about one minute nine seconds it was a very strange spectacle i didn't enjoy it I think even certain films like this, it's obviously, it, Sharknado was a novelty. This is just taking it too far. All the the awful references to other films, like we're going to need a bigger chainsaw. I think are there to make people groan, but it's not even funny. I think there was some kind of dialogue. I, I don't know who wrote it, whether they call themselves a scriptwriter. There was a point where somebody said, it's a really fast spinning wind. And someone went, a tornado and then the other one went yes and i'm thinking you've done this seven times you've just been in one with a pterodactyl and a shock you know what a tornado is it was yeah just just a a a strange thing really it was a spectacle that i don't really know why i watched there was a, a point where the main character said i've been eaten and pooped out by a lot of dinosaurs because they couldn't digest me it's been a rough day 
that's that's kind of what I want to end my review on, really. I felt like that after watching this film. <laughs> You're both missing the plot, by the way. The plot is, like, the premise is simple. They have to go through time to stop the first ever Sharknado. Then there will never be another Sharknado. No one knows why that would happen, but apparently... But then the, the first Sharknado keeps jumping through time with them. Mm-hmm. There's no logic there. No, 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 but just to be clear to everyone, because oddly, they go back in time and you think they've done it, but then then they have to try and kill it in different time frames. And then with the baffling nature of time travel, which I know you're not a massive fan of, Dunleavy, we've discussed this before, but at one point, they use a Sharknado to get the speed, 88 miles an hour, a uh, little ref to Back to the Future there, that they need to jump time. So they use the Sharknado to be able to jump time to be able to stop a Sharknado, which surely they wouldn't have been able to do if there were never any Sharknados. I mean, quite. It's a complex film. Quite. They probably then just dropped in a line from another film, Get Away From Her, You Bitch, or one of the thousands of other lines. I actually, like you say, Lucy, I don't think this is this has been written so much as cut and pasted oh, yeah, from definitely. other films and made into our film. I mean, the CGI. Should we just go to the list? Because... Yeah, let's play yeah. bingo. The thing that I am, I, I mean, I'm just going to win on, not not I'm going to win, but if you got points for examples of it, I would have won, is my eyes, the CGI. Because, I mean, there there is, this green screen in this isn't even good. In fact, there's the shittest green screen I've ever seen when they're in the western town and they've got that red building that they're all superimposed against. And it was absolutely fucking terrible i mean you know in the 70s when people were in cars and they got people would just be running past like and it'd be the same thing going past in the window that shit was better than this and that's like 40 years old ran over 50 years old mate 50 50 oh my god how old am i then <laughs> i'm nearly i'm nearly old enough to be told to stay inside it's fucking terrifying <laughs> i've got two but I have to find my son, which is the other plot point. He's constantly trying to find Gil because he's called Finn. His son's called Gil. It's almost like they were asking for a fucking Sharknado. And um, nature, you cruel mistress. The Sharknado. Oh, wait. Hang oh. on. Haven't we already seen this guy in a disaster film? I've seen all of them before. Yeah. <laughs> in the first one. Yeah. I've got three. I think I've got seven. You've got yeah. seven? Oh, yeah. So I've got... Oh, hang on. Hang on. Oh. I'm sorry. I'm still counting. Sorry. Don't try and beat me, Hannah. I genuinely try to push what happened in this film to, to a place in my mind that I rarely, rarely access. I've got four. Oh, okay. Okay, so we've got... There's no time to explain. That happened a lot in this film. There was a point where Brian turns into a black woman and then they say, well, let's not talk about this now because they didn't want to explain why that had happened. Perfect makeup throughout because there is a lot of makeup yes. and it stays on all the time. Although you, the definition of perfect yeah. uh, is pretty dodgy. Just, <laughs> but yeah, but it stays Just put. full face of makeup all the time. Mickey noted that the makeup is so important in this that the makeup person was the first person listed in the credits, wasn't yeah. they? Yeah. It was the only thing with any sort of skill, even if you didn't like the actual effect. Third one, camera <laughs> zoom, person gets out of a car or whatever, looks in the distance and says, what the... F loads of that people looking and going oh shit sharknado so it says coolish cameo now you're probably not going to give this to me so i did go looking to see who was in it everyone was in this film but there is one cameo of uh, a man called al roker 
who is quite a famous weatherman in the US. Mm. I didn't notice him when I was watching it, but I think it's because my eyes just stopped watching to to save my sanity. But he's in it, so I'm going to count that one. Is he in it for as long as Latoya Jackson? Probably. Probably. So just a few seconds. Provably bad science. I've used it correctly this time, Hannah. <laughs> no, no way, Lucy. No, you're you're not having that, that one. That up, I'm afraid. <laughs> I mean, you really are going to have to stand on. that up. Um, I have piss poor English accent because there was a lot of terrible accents in there, and there was definitely somebody doing a, a terrible English accent. Tunnel only an idiot would go through. Well, it's it's a vertical tunnel. The Sharknado. Can no. I not have that one? No, no. no Why not? No. Why not? It's creative. It's not a tunnel. It's, not a tunnel. it's a kind of tunnel. Tunnel of wind. What? Okay, no. we'll say six. No. And then Brexit. I'm just going to mute Don't. her on Zoom. Then we've got um, <laughs> Brexit analogy because it's bonkers. It's like the worst thing that you could imagine happening and it happens. Um, it's a shit storm. A shit and shark storm. So I'm happy with what I've done today. I've got thing you can't do, meaning you would definitely die in this film. 472 reasons that I would definitely die in this film. Uh, I think the main reason would be have the will to go on, <laughs> which, is, uh, which I totally lost in this film. I would have just laid down and died somewhere. Just a um, shot of Hannah in the background just running into a shark's <laughs> mouth. <laughs> yeah. No one chainsaw me out. I'm happy in there. Just let, let, let me be. Um, my eyes, the CGI, which obviously we've discussed, it was going so well until I sprained my ankle slash got hit by a shark, which happens every single time. Every mm-hmm. time there's any risk of peril to any of the main characters, the person who is is there being a threat to them is immediately hit by a flying shark. True. Yeah, and every single time. Finally, I've been there. I believe they were at Yorktown and I have actually been to Yorktown. So fun fact. Lucy wins, but she's up to game. We had a little chat and it seems she's up to game. So I'm intrigued as to which which disaster film she's going to choose. I okay, feel so. like with this film and with Left Behind, I've been exonerated. So it's true. I am going to step up my game. I would like to choose the film Alive. Yes. Which is about the, you know, the plane crash and kind of the rugby yeah. team and people having to eat themselves. So, yes. Cannibalism. Cannibalism. Yes, please. <laughs> Not eat themselves, yeah. Lucy. I don't think they ate well, themselves. I think they ate other people. <laughs> you never know what, what happens. You know, there might be sweet meat. But yes, that's the one that I'd like to see. And there's no Nicolas Cage in it at all. So you're welcome. Standard issue for all women.